Welcome to Renegade Naturalist Radio with Dr. Dan Bakken. Real stories and real science about nature and our changing environment. Today's guest is author and national parks expert Alfred Runty. Runty was recently an advisor to Ken Burns and Dayton Duncan for the Emmy Award-winning PBS series The National Parks, America's Best Idea. This is Dan Bunkin. Today I'm talking with Al Runty. He's the leading historian of American national parks, and I've known Al since the late 1970s when we were both at the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars, and we've been talking about national parks ever since, and I greatly respect what Al has to say. Uh, His book, National Parks, The American Experience, is a real classic. It's in uh, its fourth edition, and I'm delighted to be talking with Al this morning. Good morning, Al. Well, it's good to be here, Dan. Now, Al, there's lots of discussions among people interested in environment about so many different uses and needs for the national parks. I mean, some say they should be focused on conserving biological diversity. Uh, some people say they, the primary purpose is recreation. So there's so many different uses. You might want to just review quickly the contra- what you see as the major controversies right now and what really needs to happen. Well, that's always been the major controversy. What, what, what are the parks for? Are they for 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 this contemplation, or are they for recreation, meaning play? This is when people talk about recreation, they talk about play. But, but as you and I know, recreation is many things. It's recreation to be taking a hike. It's recreation just be sitting and enjoying a beautiful waterfall. You and I don't disagree that the purpose of the national parks is, is, includes recreation, but it includes that kind of recreation where nature sets the theme and nature sets the policies of preservation and protection of the resource. So the controversy that has always simmered here this past century, ever since the National Park Service was established back in 1916, is what is the primary purpose of the National Park? But there's really no issue there because it was laid out clearly. It's just that we don't want to to say that clause number two of the preservation clause is less important than preservation itself. And if you're a park manager, you make your advancement in the system by doing something. You don't make your advancement in the system by going to the director of the National Park Service and saying, look at it, it looks just as beautiful as the day I came here. Then the director of the Park Service says, well, what have you done since you came here? Well, I protected the place. Well, but, but bureaucracies don't work that way. They want to see how many people you manage. They want to see how many roads you've built. They want to see how many new visitor centers you put up. Yeah, Al, you might just tell the listener, so, uh, what are those number one and two that are in the original organic act setting up the national well, in the, uh, the, the, or, the original Organic Act, and this has a, a, a very interesting evolution itself, as you know, Frederick Olmsted was the co-designer and, and, and founder, principal founder of Central Park in New York City. Well, he passed away in 1903, but his sons, one of them adopted and one of them biological, became conservationists in their own right. And Frederick Olmsted, Jr., who was his son, was the principal author of the Preservation Clause, of the National Park Service Organic Act, which says 
we are to leave these places unimpaired for the enjoyment of future generations. And yes, we are to enjoy them. That means we are to be allowed into them. But that is the second principle behind the first principle, which is the preservation of the wildlife and the scenery therein in such manner and by such means as will leave them unimpaired for future generations. Okay, so now, what Al, the Organic Act is telling us is to preserve the land. Okay. Now, Al, uh, when you said, uh, I gathered there's certain kinds of recreation that are appropriate and others that aren't. So where does that leave you when it comes to snowmobiles into Yellowstone? And also, I think there was a, wasn't there a, a bicycle race in Yellowstone recently? Well, there's a bicycle race proposed for Colorado National Monument. I don't know if it occurred or not, but yes, there was a bicycle race proposed. And I think that the, that the Organic Act would be very clear on this if we would let it be clear. Anything that is not principally associated with the enjoyment of the resource should not be inside of a national park. So you say to the people, and I have visited Yellowstone in the winter, and they get on their snowmobiles, why couldn't you just as easily be on snowshoes or on cross-country skis or be doing something without the machine? And they look at you, and of course the reason they're there is because of the machine. And Yellowstone happens to be a great place to visit with the machine, but the machine is the principal reason that they're there. So you say to them, I I'm not denying you access. I'm not disagreeing that you have a right to be in Yellowstone in the wintertime. But as you know, when the snowmobiles first came into Yellowstone, these folks on machines didn't stop to think about the principal reason for Yellowstone, and they'd start chasing the bison, because it was fun to chase the bison on their machine and watch the bison run. And nobody had told these people that the bison need to be still in the winter, that they're under stress, that, they, that their caloric needs in the winter are high, their food supplies are low, they can't run around like that all winter long and stay healthy, and you're chasing them in your machine. It's fun, but it's not the protection of the resource. So well, they got very um, angry when the Park Service said to them, well, we'll let you here in the machine, but you've got to stay on the road, and you've got to do it with a guide. And then all of a sudden, Yellowstone wasn't so much fun anymore. And the problem has since pretty much abated because the people who now come there, even though they're on the machine, still have to stick to the roads and follow a guide. Uh, this brings up an interesting question because a uh, number of years ago, there were I was involved uh, the, when they were considering setting up the Voyageurs National Park. Now, that's in northern Minnesota, and it's not far from the Boundary Waters Canoe Area, which, as you know, is... A million acres legally designated wilderness. <clears throat> and the people who lived up in northern Minnesota, many of whom had were making their living from tourism, hunting, guiding, fishing, they were very upset because they had been excluded from using motor vehicles of any kind, motorboats, airplanes, cars, going into the boundary waters, and so that restricted how they could make a living. And here was this proposal for another national park, and they had houseboat tours, and uh, they felt genuinely aggrieved that they weren't going to be able to take people out in countryside that they also loved. Uh, so how, where do you come out in that kind of conflict? It, it, it was human on both sides, people wanting to preserve the beauty of the landscape, 
and other people feeling very deeply that they had lived here and had uh, a right and desire to to see it uh, in use. Well, the, the, the thing that you're talking about there is the difference between access and recreation with the a confession here, obviously, when we went west in 1959, as I said, we went in our, in our Chevrolet station wagon. We were in a machine. We were motorized access to all the national parks. We camped in campgrounds that were car camping campgrounds, basically. There were Airstream trailers and cars all around us in Yellowstone and Yosemite and Grand Canyon. But the point of the vehicle was access and, and not itself the recreation. We drove, we saw, we did things. But I think what, what the Park Service issue here is, is, is between where the machine is your principal reason for being there, and, and, and the machine is the reason for being there in and of itself. You and I don't see float planes, I think, or, or houseboats, or little motors on motorboats that are going across uh, 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 wilderness lakes as the same kind of intrusion as people who simply come there, as you say, to have a motorcycle race. And it's Actually, so what you're, saying is that, what you're saying is that the people who run the uh, houseboat and have loved being out in that country their whole lives and feel the same way that you feel about it, they see it as a way to share. They don't see it as just going out for a ride. They see exactly, it as a way to share. Exactly. So you would and say that their use is fine, but just riding a vehicle to ride the vehicle, that's right. another place. That's a very right. interesting distinction. Right, and, and I think that, that that extinction is because if we go back in park history, as we know, the first people who went to the parks rode in on horseback, then came in on stagecoaches, then big Concord stagecoaches, then came in on open-air uh, buses, and then, and then finally the automobile came into the parks about a century ago in the 19-teens. And the, 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 the point that we're making here is that you have to get in somewhere in some way, and the way that you get into the park is in and of itself not bad. It's not the wrong way. You are a pilot, and I, I think it's perfectly legitimate for somebody who understands the rules and, and so forth to fly over a national park and look at it from the air. We do that with the one tour that I work in. We actually fly our guest over the Capitol Reef National Park at about three or 4,000 feet, in these planes that are very quiet and very unobtrusive, unless people look up and happen to see them, they don't even know they're there. And that's Al, the you know, you brought up a point that I don't think anybody must, uh, knows about me, but you're right. I have a pilot's license and an instrument rating. And actually, I flew from Santa Barbara to the Grand Canyon, landing at the airport right there, which means I flew in and over the park, over the Great Canyons, and then landed. But as you say, that was how I got there. It's not what I did once I got there. I hiked, uh, right. and we were flying in a way that would be as quiet as possible. That's a, Right, yeah. and, and as you know, you, you, you learn things from the air. You see things from the air that you don't see on the ground. I, I love Google. I love Google Earth because... It shows me landscapes. I can look down on landscapes and see what's going on there. And you learn things. And I don't think that that's inappropriate. And when the visitors with this uh, talk discovery tours leave the, the, the Grand Canyon, it includes a flight over the Grand Canyon on their way back to Las Vegas. And, and I don't see that that is intrusive because the planes are designed for it. They're quiet. 
the, the pilots follow the, uh, the prescribed routes that have been laid out to keep them from interfering with wilderness, and, and, and it's, it's, it's fine. But the, the reason people are there is not to have, again, an airplane race. You know, right. we haven't set up two stanchions on either side of the Grand Canyon, and let's see how fast uh, we can get around these stanchions and who the winner is. That's, a that, very that's the kind of thing that you're talking about and I'm yeah, talking about. Right, and that's a very interesting distinction. And I will say that, you know, I really loved flying airplanes. Uh, and one of the things I liked about it the most was just what you're saying, saying that you can see nature from above and see things about it that you never would have guessed otherwise. Uh, <clears throat> Antron de Saint-Exupéry, who wrote this wonderful book, uh, When Santa Stars Old, also wrote The Little Prince, which many people will know, he said that flying in an airplane put him inside nature, not outside, and the machine was the way to understand nature. And that's what you're saying. If the machine right. helps you understand nature and connect with it in a spiritual sense, that's a good thing. If it's the machine, like you want to do car racing, you do that at a racetrack. That's very interesting. Al, <clears throat> we're almost out of time, and I know you have lots of important ideas about the national parks. Uh, and so I'd like you to just take a minute or two. Tell me what you think most people should be aware of and concerned about about our national parks right now. Well, well, of course, the biggest concern that we always face is keeping them inviolate. That's always, always the concern of the American people. We, we, we are, are a country that continues to grow. When the national park idea was invented, we had 30 million people in this country, most of them living east of the Mississippi River, for that matter, most of them living east of the Ohio and the Appalachian Mountains, still in the Civil War period when our parks were founded. We now have 10 times that population at 314 million people, and, and people do a lot of different things, and they want a lot of different things. So the biggest challenge is keeping the national park idea healthy as a contemplative and, and biologically motivated idea through the 21st century and beyond. That's going to be very hard to do because, as you and I both know, as cities increase, they begin to impinge into open space, and then open space becomes fragmented itself. And the national parks are islands, and, and that's literally what they are. There, there, there are some national parks that are still fairly remote from civilization, meaning from uh, what we, you and I referred to in our previous article as mindless development, but they're getting fewer and farther between. So the big challenge is keeping them and, and keeping the ideals that surround them too, the national forest and the national wildlife refuges and all the other supportive lands, keeping these things as part of the American experience and understanding that vacant land is not in and of itself undeveloped land. We hear that all the time from developers. They say, well, it's, it's, it's not developed. It isn't doing anything. Well, of course it's doing things. It's making oxygen. It's providing, uh, it's providing watersheds here in Seattle where I live. We have critical watersheds in the mountains, and we get the finest water because we have tens of thousands of acres set aside for that purpose. So, of course, it's doing something. It's just that most people don't understand that they are indeed physical and biological animals. They don't know these things, and we need to remind them of it, and we need to remind them of how important it is to have national parks. That's and I think really most great. Of people do that. And, I think, and I'm not worried about minorities either. I think they'll find these parks. 
I think they're finding them now. If 187 countries have national parks, that means that people of all races, creeds, and colors have national parks. They don't need to be led by the nose to our national parks. They will find them. It is simply important that they find them properly and find them as areas where, indeed, nature still reigns supreme. But the point is that the national park experience that, that, that so, so excites us even today is that wonder of being able to see these beautiful and magnificent places and to say that we, we in the United States have something distinctive. And as we know today in the year 2012, people come from all over the world to see this, and we have sent the national park idea all over the world in return, 187 other countries have national parks. 12.5% of the surface of this planet is protected in parks and protected reserves, over 100,000 of those. And it all comes back to us, to our ideal that landscape is something precious and something worth preserving. The ideal that marched from Central Park west to Yosemite and then to Yellowstone and now all over the continent and all over the world is, is this is this great American achievement, and as Wallace Stegner said, it's the best idea we ever had. Well, that's really great, Al, and uh, we've run out of time, but it's really been another great conversation. You know, I always enjoy talking with you, and this has just been another wonderful opportunity. So thanks very much for being on the program. Well, thank you very much, too, Dan. This has been Renegade Naturalist Radio, hosted by Daniel Bakken. For more information about Dan or about his books, please go to www.danielbbotkin.com.